Again, this is the USS Montana requesting that you immediately divert your course 15 degrees to the north to avoid a collision. Over. Please divert your course 15 degrees to the south to avoid collision. This is Captain Hancock. You will divert your course. Over. Negative, Captain. I'm not moving anything. Change your course. Over. Sir, this is the USS Montana, the second largest vessel in the North Atlantic Fleet. You will change course 15 degrees north, or I will be forced to take measures to ensure the safety of this ship. Over! This is a lighthouse, mate. It's your call. commercial is based on a, a famous story that was popularized in the book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. I remember reading it when I was in college and realizing that there are these moments in your life where you are heading full steam ahead, where you are so sure that you are right, that you are doing exactly what you're supposed to be doing. And then you have that moment of humility or humiliation that tells you you've got to change course. Today I want to talk about what do you do when God calls you to go in a different direction? What do you do when you need to pivot, when you're so sure that your life, your convictions, everything is going this way, and then before you know it, you're going that way. Well, we're in the midst of a series of messages on the book of Acts, and we're looking at it through the prism of God's kingdom, how God is bringing his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And so we're talking about these different facets, these different dimensions of the book of Acts as we walk through it, that there's this witness that God has called us to be and to do, and because of that, he gives us his spirit and his power and his courage in order to be able to face the threats, and in order to be able to live out this call we've got curiosity, which we saw last week and this week, we have to have some flexibility to be able to do a kingdom reversal. We're looking at three stories in Acts chapter 8, 9, and 10 that are three personal stories of transformation. And last week, we saw the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch and how the primary way that God changes us is through the careful and curious reading of Scripture. Today we're going to be looking at the famous story of Saul on the road to Damascus. And let's start reading in the first verse of chapter 9. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any who were there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, that he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, he replied. So many times I hear people say when they're describing their journey of faith, their story of faith, they'll say with almost an apology, I've never had a Damascus Road experience. 
And when someone says that to me, I always ask a series of follow-up questions, most of which to say, has there ever been a moment in your life when you have had to reverse course? Has there ever been a moment when you have had to pivot? Has there ever been a moment where you have had to chart with reorientation into a new direction? And of course, the answer is always yes. I said, you may have never had the drama of a Damascus Road experience. But the core of Damascus Road experience wasn't the nature in the blinding light that God used on that day with Saul. It was the idea that there was something that was going on where God intervened in Saul's life. Saul, Saul, why are you doing this? Notice the wording that is chosen here. He calls him by name. He says, you're doing this, and you're doing this to me. And and Saul asks, who are you? Saul doesn't even know who's talking. And he identifies himself as this Jesus. The point of the passage is this, is that when you and I are called to go into a new direction, The first step in that new direction is almost always that God pursues us personally. With the benefit of hindsight, we can always see these moments where God called us by name and was chasing us even when we weren't chasing God. It reminds me of the story of a group of people who lived in the countryside where they were dealing with an overpopulation of wolves. And so in order to try to get the wolf population down, they put a bounty, $5,000, on each wolf that was killed and brought in so that they might give people an incentive for the wolf population to be able to go down that was killing all the livestock and disrupting their society. And so Sam and Jeb had really never made a lot of money in their life, and they were excited, and so they spent every waking moment trying to find some of these wolves, and even though that they would hear them at night, they weren't able to seem to find them. Day after day, night after night, they looked, and finally one night, they were so exhausted, they just fell asleep with their backs against the tree. Two or three o'clock in the morning, they heard a sound, and Sam opened his eyes, and there in front of him, were 20 wolves baring their teeth, glaring at them and beginning to growl. And Sam hit his friend on the shoulder, Jeb, Jeb, wake up, we're rich. (laughs) The hunter had become the hunted. Which reminds me of a time when I was in Texas, when we were living in our home, the way that our floor plan was is you could kind of run through the the kitchen and through our family room and back into the kitchen and kind of this one big loop. And when our youngest daughter, Ashby, was little and had finally got her footing underneath her, her favorite game was to chase me in that track around the kitchen and the family room over and over again, usually during the time when Kelly was trying to cook dinner and that this both made her happy and annoyed her all at the same time. But Ashby would squeal with delight as she would chase me, and she would chase me in that circle after circle. And one time, I decided that I would try a new strategy, because usually I would let her get just close, and then with a burst of speed, I would take off, and she couldn't quite get me. 
on this particular occasion, I decided to turn on the afterburners and go really fast. And Ashby's running and she's trying to chase me. And all of a sudden, she's looking behind her and she realizes that I'm now chasing her. And you should have seen the saucers that were in her eyes when all of a sudden that she who thought that she was the one who was pursuing is the one who was being pursued. Such is the nature of faith that C.S. Lewis helped us to understand that when we talk about man's search for God, it's ridiculous as saying is the mouse's search for the cat. God is pursuing you. And there are moments when we come to the realization, like Saul, where God is active and alive in this world, and he is pursuing you and calling you by name, and that that is both a source of great comfort, but it also should be a source of great awe and reverence and no short of a little bit of fear. God's pursuing you right now. Let's look at the next part of the sect. Now get up and go into the city, Jesus tells Saul, and you will be told what you must do. And the men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but they did not see anyone. And Saul got up from the ground. When he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. And so they led him by the hand into Damascus. And for three days, he was blind, and he did not eat or drink anything. Saul was the kind of guy who was used to being in charge. Saul was the kind of guy who was used to making a plan and sticking to that plan. Saul was the kind of guy who was used to working the chain of command and making sure that everything was in order so that things might be in place so that he can accomplish what he wants to on his checklist that day. We know Saul to be zealous. We know him to be methodical. And he always likes to be in control. And what happens to Saul when he discovers that he's being pursued by God is he enters into this period of disorientation. Is that there's going to come a moment, several days, even longer in fact, but at least several days where Saul's not going to even be able to walk under his own power to where he wants to go. And in fact, God is going to tell him where to go because he has become disoriented temporarily in order that he might become the kind of person that God wants him to be. Wonderful novel that I got to read this last summer is by Kara Wall. It's called The Dearly Loved. And in this novel, there's a main character by the name of Charles, whose father actually is a classics professor at Harvard University. Charles was the kind of kid who loved comic books, but he was deathly afraid to bring a comic book home because his dad was the kind of person that if he brought a comic book home, his dad would assign him an essay to write or give him a math problem to solve. He believed that the mind should never be idle and he felt that everything could be solved with intense and rigorous discipline. With that kind of household and with the intellectual horsepower of his family, Charles became a fantastic student and followed in his father's footsteps and actually attending Harvard University and becoming a medieval literature student. And while he was there, Charles encountered a new professor 
a new professor who said that not everything can be learned in this world through rigor and study. Some things can only be learned through empathy and through discovery and through imagination. And so Charles was swept up in kind of the beginning of a a new understanding of a new kind of hero and adult to look up to. And one day this medieval literature professor asked Charles a very, very delicate question. He said, Charles, do you believe in God? Charles became immediately awkward in that moment because, of course, he didn't. He said that his father would always talk about God as for people who were intellectually lazy, people who needed the crutch said that they only attended church once or maybe twice a year, and they attended so with the same enthusiasm of going to the dentist. And so Charles answers that he does not. But his professor said, look, there's, there's a lecture that's coming from a friend of mine, and he's an expert in medieval literature, but he's kind of a religious expert, so I just wanted to give you a heads up, and Charles goes to the lecture. And while he's there, The lecturer is a guy by the name of Father Martin, who's a priest. And he asks the haunting question as he talks about Joan of Arc, what if God is real? And the way that he asked the question, and the way that he spoke about reality, Charles couldn't shake it. This is how Kara writes it. In the days that followed the lecture, Charles felt odder than he had ever felt before. There was a lump inside his chest, solid and damp like wet clay, as if Father Martin had opened a door in his ribcage and slipped an unfinished piece of pottery inside him, turning Charles himself into a kiln. He could not shake the feeling of a shape drying to completion, the colors of its glaze becoming vivid. It was hot, so intense that sometimes Charles was afraid that it would shatter, so unbearable that it drove him out of bed into the cool night where he could not parse its urgency into footsteps and breath and forward motion. He had not known the question was God. He had not been aware that he had ever, even ever wondered about God, not really, not deeply. The pain he felt now, he realized, came from forbidding himself to believe it. This answer to a question that he did not think he had asked, this confidence growing in him, both secret and certain, God existed. God was real. He could not explain this new conclusion except to say that when he put it away, it was agony. And when he brought it out, it was the deepest, most beautiful relief that he had ever known. When you and I are called to change course because of God, it will not be necessarily through the smooth path of, of course, but through the pain of disorientation and agony and wonder and imagination. Many people think that if they follow Jesus, everything in their life falls immediately into place. I'm here to tell you if you follow Jesus, 
there will be periods where you spin around and around. And only after you're done spinning will you understand where you're supposed to go. Verse number 10. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias, and the Lord called him in a vision, Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask him for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm that he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem, and he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings to the people of Israel, and I will show him how much he must suffer for my name." I don't often have moments where I read the translation of the NIV and say, oh, they got that wrong, but here is one of those instances. Here is a moment where God calls Ananias, and Ananias says, yes, Lord, in the text. But in reality, that's rooted in the old, the literal translation is the old prayer going all the way back to the Old Testament. It's not just, yes, Lord, like, hello, Lord, like you were picking up a phone call. It's that phrase, here I am, Lord. And so Ananias prays that prayer. And no sooner has he prayed that prayer when God tells him what he's supposed to do that Ananias says in the best pious religious way possible, you have got to be kidding me. Is this some sort of joke? The guy who is murdering Christians in Jerusalem, who has come here to arrest us, you want me to do what? Many people think when they read the story of Acts chapter 9 that it's only the story of the reversal of Saul, but in reality, there are two twin engines in this story. It's both the reversal of Saul and the reversal of Ananias. And so, yes, God pursues you. Yes, God disorients you. And yes, God will surprise you. Hear me clearly and plainly. If you were following Jesus, and you don't feel like God ever surprises you, I would question that it's Jesus that you are following. Because Jesus always surprises. Several years ago when I was a pastor in Southern California, there was a a young woman who was a part of the church who was also a friend of the family. Her name, ironically for being a friend, is Jennifer Friend. And she was in the congregation, and what you need to know about Jennifer is that she grew up homeless. She grew up in a family that moved from motel to motel. She bounced from school to school. And in spite of all of the different challenges that she had to face in the midst of poverty and inconsistency and not always having a roof above her head, Jennifer somehow was a shining star as a student, and education became her way out. 
She eventually went to law school and became a partner in a law firm and decided that she would, you know, give back to the community. And there was this small organization that focused on family poverty and homelessness. And she joined the board and she gave them legal advice and she helped them set policy and direction and vision and all of those different things. I want to show you a picture of Jennifer. And so she's sitting in the congregation one day, listening to a really good sermon. (laughs) When God starts to tug at her heart. God tugs at her heart because she's the chair of a search committee for the next executive director for that small little not-for-profit that she's on. When all of a sudden, in listening to the words, she realizes she's not supposed to look for the candidate, she's supposed to become the candidate. And so she leads, she leaves the office and the partnership and the benefits, and she empties herself to take on this little fledgling not-for-profit to help the very people that she was like when she was a child. The reason I can tell you that that was a really good sermon is that I wasn't the one that was preaching it. I preach about 40 times a year, and on that particular Sunday, my wife was preaching. Next week, my wife is preaching here at Peachtree, so if you don't want your life to be changed, you better not come next week. You better not listen. But Jennifer's life was a great reversal. She thought that her experience was something that she was supposed to escape from, when in reality, God was calling her to enter back into it. God will surprise you. Verse 17. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it, and placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again and he got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Not only does God pursue us and disorient us and surprise us, finally, God restores us. There might not be two more beautiful words if we have the courage to read the Bible in its context than the two words you just heard. Brother Saul. Imagine saying that to someone who killed one of your friends. Imagine saying that to someone who was your enemy. Imagine saying that and placing your hands of healing and mercy on someone 
who despised you. Brother Saul. been a pastor for almost a quarter of a century. And the one thing that I know that our world, our community, our city desperately needs right now is followers of Jesus with the courage to reach out to people who may despise us and to call them brother and to call them sister. I don't know any way for our society to heal from the conflict and the fear and the pain until we understand that God is pursuing us and pushing us and disorienting us and surprising us and now calling us to lay hands on our society and call them family. I don't know what else can do it. This is a picture of a beautiful portion of Montana up in the Rockies. This is known as Man Gulch. And back in August of 1945, there was a famous fire that took place in this region. I wanna show you a picture of it from an airplane. Massive pillowing smoke, and there was a group here of people who were not skydiving but are known as smoke jumpers that jumped out of the plane. There were 15 of them in total who jumped down out of the plane in order to be able to help to keep the fire at bay so that it didn't grow any worse or any further. Sadly, when they got to the ground and they looked, the the fire had already jumped the gulch and the fire was raging at a rapid speed. It was moving at a speed of two football fields per minute. 30 foot tall flames. And they realized when they got to the place where they were supposed to fight and hold ground that they could do nothing but run. And so they turned and they began to run, but as fast as that fire was coming, they knew there was no way to escape. But run they did. One of them decided to stop. And he did something that had never been a part of his training. He actually took out some matches that he had in his pack and he started to burn the ground where he was. His colleagues thought that he was crazy and most of them kept running. Why was he burning the ground? He burned the ground to create a spot that had already been burned and then taking a canteen-soaked handkerchief over his mouth, he laid down on the ground that had already been burned. And the flames passed over him. And he was only one of three that survived. 
When they did an analysis of the story, they were amazed to discover that people would run, but they wouldn't drop all of their gear. Who were they if they didn't have all their fire equipment? Who were they if they didn't have all of their stuff? And yet there was this handful who were willing to change course in an entire new direction. My friends, you don't need to burn because the ground has already burned for you in Jesus. You don't need to run anymore because he runs to you in Jesus. You don't need to die anymore because he has already died for you in Jesus. And when you stop to think about it, there are too many people in this world who are running around and have no idea that there is a safe place where the flames cannot reach you, where they not overwhelm you, and you will not be burned. And I can't help but wonder if, even in the midst of this sermon, if the Holy Spirit isn't speaking, pursuing, disorienting, surprising, or convicting you that there's a work of restoration that needs to happen. And so let us pray. God, we would prefer for life to be straightforward and that we would never have to be knocked off course. Help us during this message to take some invasive maneuvers, give us a new direction, pursue us with your unrelenting love and give us the ability to understand that just as you went to arrest people in Damascus that God is arresting our hearts. I pray for anybody who is blind and helpless and in the midst of a temporary disorientation. Will you meet them there in that disorientation for them to know of your great presence? Lord, I pray for anybody who is being surprised by what you're calling them to do. And will you help us to have the courage to be like Ananias? to restore your family and this society to where it's supposed to be. Lord, we know that part of living in your kingdom is being willing to reverse course. And so give us the humility and the flexibility to do just that.